And let's turn to Isaiah chapter 34. Please follow as I read. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, and upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat. With the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb, plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has apportioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning land shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God. Isaiah now leads us to that point of personal decision and commitment. Because chapters 34 and 35 conclude a major section of the book. So this is where we make up our minds. He's been giving us prophetic eyes to see God for who he is, to see ourselves for who we are. What has he told us about God? God is our most loyal ally in the struggle of life. God has given himself to us. He's made promises to us. He has already proven himself to us. He deserves to be trusted. And what has Isaiah told us about ourselves? That we barely, if at all, trust God. We should go through life with glad expectancy because God is on our side. But do we? What usually happens is that today's need crowds out of our consciousness yesterday's deliverance. And about after five minutes or so, blessing X, whatever it was, doesn't really make much of an impact on our minds anymore. And we wring our hands as if we were constantly teetering on the edge of abandonment by God. So Isaiah has shown us two things. One, God is faithful. Two, we are faithless. And we need to make up our minds. Are we going to live by faith in God or by faith in ourselves? For example, God defends us against our ultimate enemy, our own moral guilt. How does God do that? The gospel says that God rescues us from condemnation by justifying us on the basis of what Christ deserves, not on the basis of what we deserve. That's wonderful. But do we live as if that were real? Do we allow ourselves to enjoy overflowing acceptance before a holy God? Or are we constantly on edge, wondering how he's going to punish us next? Martin Luther wrote, Let it not be tedious to you if we repeat these things that at other times we teach, preach, sing, and set forth in writing. For if we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose everything. It cannot be beaten into our ears enough. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, still no one takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all his heart. So frail a thing is our flesh and disobedient to the Spirit. <laughs> well, that's true. The default setting in our hearts is to treat God as a worthless ally in the ways that count while we trot off to idols for our salvation. We don't think of it that way. 
We don't see ourselves allied with idols for salvation because we don't see that the category salvation is the key to everything. Salvation is what we are always looking for, even in the wrong places. But true salvation is simply God entering into our lives with his grace in Christ to meet all our needs. And Isaiah has been urging us to treat God as a faithful, loyal ally, a good Savior, so that we end up looking like people who've been saved from something and therefore have something to say to the world. (laughs) Now, in chapters 34 and 35, he moves toward closure. Um, You know, he's been talking about Assyria a lot all along the way. Now, Assyria fades from view. And the prophet addresses the whole world. You see that in chapter 34, verse 1. Interestingly, the one nation he does mention uh, is Edom in chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Why does Edom show up all of a sudden? Because, not because Edom has any significance in itself per se, but because Edom typifies the whole world. Think back. When the nation Israel was on its way to the Promised Land, they requested passage through Edom. Perhaps you've read that in Numbers chapter 20. And Israel even offered to pay for the water that they would drink on their way. Now, why shouldn't Edom be open to Israel? They were, they were related. Jacob and Esau, from whom these two nations came, were brothers. But Edom held a grudge against Israel and refused to let Israel pass through. So Edom was, in fact, trying to block the salvation God was bringing into the world. Edom, then, is the antithesis to God's pilgrim people. That's why Isaiah singles Edom out. The ethos of Edomite culture is the spirit of the whole world, and we have to get past Edom to be saved by God. Everyone on the face of the earth is looking for salvation from some Edom or other. if not from God. Edom is committed, the mentality of Edom is committed to earthly rewards and earthly payoffs. In other words, Edom is what's wrong with the whole world. And Isaiah is saying to us now, I want you, here in chapter 34, I want you to to listen in to what God has to say to this world about that great and final day of judgment. Is that what you want to be a part of? Or will you set your heart on a salvation from outside this world? A heavenly reward. A life, a joy, a glory, a security, a satisfaction coming only from God. Chapter 34 shows us what will become of the world culture that we live in right now. And chapter 35 shows us what will become of everyone who lives by faith in the promised salvation of God. It's kind of like Philippians 3 in the Old Testament. He left it behind, forgetting what lies behind, 
and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on. There's the difference between chapter 34 and chapter 35. So in these two chapters, Isaiah leads us by the hand all the way out to the absolute brink where time merges into eternity. He shows us the seamless connection between what we embrace now and what we will have then. He lifts his eyes from his own times in the 8th century B.C. to see how things will finally end up forever and ever. He sees this world deconstructed, human existence renewed in chapter 35. God's people no longer enfeebled, all tears wiped away from their eyes. And his point is this. The salvation that you prefer now, whether earthly or heavenly, is shaping who you are and which direction you will go forever. You and I need to understand that hell or heaven will be, in one sense, the eternal extension of the deepest, truest you that you become in this life. Therefore, the most urgently important question in your existence is, what are you becoming? Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. If you are cherishing God as your ally, if you are savoring by faith a life, a salvation, a fullness from Him, you are already on your way to what Isaiah calls Zion in chapter 35. But if you choose to live by faith in yourself and in this world, Isaiah 34 is showing, your, showing you your future. What if God leaves you to yourself? What if God, what if God never saves you from yourself? What if God never intervenes to rescue you from that itching envy in your heart? That bitterness eating away at you inside? That anger raging inside you. Your ungrateful self, for whom nothing is ever quite good enough. The you lurking in the fantasy twilight of lust because you can't risk real intimacy. The you buried alive in the coffin of greed. The you that is just too sophisticated for childlike delight in God. What if God never saves you? The you that you are becoming now is the you you will be forever. Unless God saves you, you will eventually find that you can't stop anymore. And the grumbling and blaming and all the rest will take over. And churn on forever like a machine and there will never be any rest for your soul. That hell is when a human being becomes 
an ex-human being. A shadow of the image of God, the photographic negative of what you were meant to be when God made you. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? God can save you. He wants you to be a part of the Isaiah 35 scenario. If you will turn to him and trust him, he will make the difference. All by himself. Salvation is God. Liberating the soul from this infestation of self-focus. Salvation is God clearing away this tangled undergrowth of self-absorption forever. Salvation is God replacing all this dark complication with something new and simple and beautiful, flooding the soul with a sense of his own glory. That is how we obtain gladness and joy. That is how sorrow and sighing flee away. And if you will bow before God in humble trust, He will start to save you. And your heavenly joy will enter into your heart even now, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Peter just talked about it to us when we read chapter 1 of 1 Peter. You see the structure of the text in your outline. There are two points because Isaiah makes the alternatives unmistakably obvious. There's judgment, chapter 34. There's salvation, chapter 34. We have to choose. First of all, we look at judgment in chapter 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the world hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. It is not wrong to warn people about the judgment of God. This is not some sort of sermonic abusiveness. God wants everyone to hear this message. Francis Schaeffer used to say that if he had one hour to talk to someone about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, he would spend the first 50 minutes talking about the bad news of judgment and then only the last 10 minutes talking about the good news of salvation because without the context of judgment, we don't even understand salvation. We don't value it. So God wants us to stop and think, what does it mean to live in a universe where God judges evil? We fear the wrong things. We fear looking bad in the eyes of people. What do they matter? The God who will either judge us or save us has four resources, according to verses 2 through 10. Look at verse 2. The ESV says, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and that's a valid translation. A bit more literally, it could be translated, The Lord has Rage against all the nations. Now I point that out because look at verse 6. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. Verse 6 again. The Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra. Verse 8. The Lord has a day of vengeance. The God with whom we have to deal has four things going for him. Rage, a sword, 
a sacrifice, and a day of vengeance. Now, what does that tell us? First, on that great and final day, the wrath of God will explode upon the world like the bursting of a dam with I would not say this unless it were in the text. This is the prophetic vision, whether we like it or not. The wrath of God will explode upon the world like the bursting of a dam with the mountains dissolving in mudslides of human blood. God is patient with human evil. He's more patient than we are. He's giving everyone a chance, but his patience will have an end because he is also just. He's more just than we are. He's more just than we wish he would be. Secondly, the sword of God will descend from heaven. And how can man run from that? What canopy of defense, what strategic defense initiative can deflect the tip of the sword of God? Thirdly, there will be a final sacrifice. All the moral guilt not paid for by the sacrifice of Christ will be paid for by the guilty themselves. Listen, someone will be sacrificed for your sins. Either Christ as your substitute or you yourself. God will balance out the scales of justice in your case. Fourthly, all this terrible finality has actually been scheduled on the calendar of the human history we are living in right now. The Lord has a day. It is absolutely coming. God will not leave things hanging forever. He will vindicate the faith of everyone who trusts Him. That's why it says, for the cause of Zion in verse 8. And the social order that we see around us right now, so impressive, so formidable, will dissolve into a volcanic wasteland, as in the dreadful metaphors of verses 9 and 10. Do you believe this? Or do you blow this off? Do you see God as moving events toward finality? If this is who God is, what kind of people must we be? But Isaiah doesn't even let up on us yet. Not yet. In verses 11 through 15, he does something we don't expect. We're looking at the smoking ruins of verses 9 and 10, and we think it can't get any worse than this. We're looking at a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah under fire and brimstone. He's deliberately alluding to Sodom and Gomorrah. But this time it's the whole world. What next? Well, there's more. There's more. Because, as we see in verses 11 through 15, the judgment of God is not merely extinction. The judgment of God not only reduces stylish and powerful evil to smoking ash. His judgment also turns self-salvation into a kind of parody of its former self. 
In verses 11 through 15, the prophetic eye sees this world of human pride devolving into the haunt of creepy animals and overgrown with thorns. It's made unfit for human habitation like a rat-infested condemned building. And the most chilling thing about this is the precision with which God unmakes the world culture we live in now. Verse 11, second half of the verse. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Now, Isaiah is not condemning God's good creation. He's thinking of the human social order, the Edom. We see the word kingdom in verse 12. There's a kingdom where nobody trusts God. And what does God intend to do about that? The prophet sees God busily at work as a construction worker. Or better, a deconstruction worker. God puts on his hard hat, bends over the society man is assembling with such brilliance, this massive project minimizing God, minimizing dependence on God, and instead of building it up further, God reverses it to nothingness. These words, confusion and emptiness, that we see in the text, in verse 11, those words are also used in the creation account of Genesis 1, where the Bible says the earth was without form and void. And Isaiah borrows those two words from Genesis 1, inloads them into his vision as God hits the rewind button to reverse into disorder the system made by man that has so long distorted into evil God's good order for our lives. And he will destroy it with a precision that leaves nothing left. He will never make peace with it. And we're living in it. Finally, in verses 16 and 17, Isaiah looks us straight in the eye. He reads our minds and he says, now look, don't hold out for God to change his mind. Don't think God might lose his nerve. It won't happen. There is no plan B. You must reckon with the finality and detail of the judgment of God. Verse 16, seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. Now you can choose to live, not to live by faith in God, but you cannot choose to evade the consequences of that. Lance Armstrong is a brilliant athlete. A four-time winner of the Tour de France. He is a courageous survivor of cancer. When he was fighting cancer and his life was hanging in the balance, he tells us in his book, it's not about the bike. He tells us that he rated his chances. Quite simply, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person, and that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or, or to some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, 
then I believe that should be good enough. At the end of the day, if there was indeed some person or presence standing there to judge me, I hope I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I'd been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hope I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian. So you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what? You're right. Fine. Do we know who we are? Do we know who God is? No one is going to have the last word on God. The good life, turning into an eternally barren desert, that is where God neglect takes us, Isaiah 34. But if you turn to God, your desert can be transformed into a garden. That is what the grace of God can do, Isaiah 35. Just the opposite. Every one of us is moving in either of these two directions, either into judgment or salvation, and what God wants is to save you. So chapter 35, salvation, verse 1. The wilderness, look, look where God begins. Where else could it be? The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. God starts his renewing work of grace in the desert of our lives. How could it be otherwise? We come to him just as, as we are. No pretense. It's a dreary desert. That's what we are. But God is able to give lush growth and life and joyful song. Joy is the tone of this whole chapter 35 because salvation is not just when we stop being bad. Salvation is when we see God's glory and majesty. What must He be that the mere sight of Him transforms us from a desert to a garden? It is so foolish to hold God at arm's length. He himself is the desire of your heart. And he wants you to see his glory both now by faith and in heaven face to face. Now, how does God do this now? How does he do this? This is not just metaphorical language. This is real. He does it through the ministry of the gospel. The Bible says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we see God's glory in real terms in the face of Jesus. And we see the face of Jesus as the Holy Spirit makes him real to us and vivid to us through and according to his word. We see how Christ is an overflowing fountain. For empty, needy sinners, how Christ is their wealth and honor and wisdom and happiness. How Christ is a righteousness 
to cover all our guilt, a power to conquer all our sins, a purity to wash away all our filth, a spring of eternal freshness. That's Christ for sinners. They see in Christ a fullness to satisfy all their desires. And the believing heart thrives in this new awareness of who Jesus is and what he's worth to you. And that's why hearing the word of God is not just listening to a Bible lecture. It is an encounter with the living Christ. It is seeing his glory by faith according to his word. And it's his glory that makes us glad. And we should help each other and encourage each other in this way to, to seek him, to go hard after him, to live as confident people. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, and who doesn't? Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Encouragement is one of the most important ministries in the church. We should always encourage one another to look forward to new blessing from God. If we had experienced all that he can do for us by now, all that we should ever expect, it would be discouraging. But there is more for us in Christ than we have yet apprehended. And Isaiah is calling us to create the atmosphere of expectancy because God is coming with the fullness of salvation. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I love this. What do we bring to the table? Well, we bring blindness, deafness, lameness, and silence. What does God bring to the table? Sight, sound, agility, and joyful song. He is what we need. And he is enough. You know how Charles Wesley described the transforming power of the gospel. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come in. Leap, ye lame, for joy. That is what God does. That's the impact of the gospel. It is his professional business to make spiritual cripples into world beaters. And the motivating power that he uses is joy. And not only does he promise to renew you if you'll trust him, he also promises to create new conditions, a new environment. Verse 6b, second half of verse 6. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. We should never give up. One commentator puts it this way, the way of man is to make the inhabited uninhabitable. The way of God is to make the, take the barren and make it abundant. What we spoil, God renews. He does it through the Holy Spirit, 
breaking forth. Do you see that language there in the verse? For waters break forth. He does it through the Holy Spirit breaking forth into our hearts and into our church with life-enriching, soul-satisfying fullness. And it's there where God comes in life-enriching power that that's when we get traction for holiness. Verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Isaiah is thinking, when he says highway, he's thinking literally of a highway, a causeway that's been raised so it's obvious. You can't miss it. Everybody can see it. God makes it unmistakably simple. He makes our path forward immediately clear. The way to joy is holiness. Becoming like God himself. And the ones who share this journey, he says, are the redeemed and the ransomed of the Lord. That is, the people whom God has taken on as his personal responsibility. They trust in him and he pays their way. That's the deal. That's what it means to be redeemed and ransomed. Christ pays the price for you. And where does it get you in the end? Verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. This must be one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads like a crown. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All our lives, we just wanted to be happy. And something has always been there to spoil it. God is saying, look to me. Trust me enough to follow me. And I'll bring you home with singing. I will overwhelm you with the sheer weight of the happiness I will give you. It will be a joy unbroken and unbreakable. And sorrow and sighing will run for it. Which way is it going to be for you? Some are content with the self-importance and pettiness and materialism of this present evil age. They're filling their bellies, their bank accounts, and their egos with the salvation of this world. And they will go on forever discovering how empty that fullness really is. But there are others whose hearts yearn for something this world cannot give. They long for God's salvation. And they will receive it, not because they deserve it, but because Jesus lived and died for them. And though the pursuit of that joy in Christ will cost them everything in this world, they don't care. They turn their backs and gladly press on toward the joy that can never end. Who are you 